it was about 120 years ago, right at the outset of the uh, 20th century as the 19th century and everything that had gone before gave way to the 20th century and uh, the hope and the optimism that uh, a young couple got married and uh, in the joy of their um, you know, early years of marriage decided that they were going to take advantage of the opportunities and probably something that was stirring within them and move further out west. And so they moved from their home in Chicago uh, out to Colorado with the idea of starting fresh, starting new, uh, being part of sort of that western frontier and just seeking uh, the next path inside of their life. And so while they were out there, the husband got uh, extremely ill. And so they had to move back to Chicago to be near family, to be near uh, better medical care. And so as they settled back into Chicago, he uh, got into the telegraph uh, business and so was involved in that and was uh, kind of rising inside of the field. He, he was a bright, intelligent man and was successful at what he did. But uh, during that time, also between the illness and the move and, and the stirring that was within him, uh, what was once a quiet faith began to enlarge within him. And he found that God began to capture his heart and move his life to really just, you know, stir within him a desire for something more than just uh, to live a good life or to be successful. The gentleman's name was Charles and, and his wife's name is, is Letty. Uh, that's not a name that we hear. And so Charles and Letty Kalman um, went on to be missionaries. But before they got there, they attended uh, during a two or three day stretch of events a missionary conference where the speaker was A.B. Simpson. A.B. Simpson, you may have heard that name before, was a, an evangelist and a, and a traveling teacher and uh, became really the, the pioneer and the start of the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination was A.B. Simpson was the founder of that group. And so inside of that movement, like A.B. Simpson would go and would preach about world missions and how, you know, after the Civil War and just, you know, the Industrial Revolution and there were now more and easier opportunities to get around the world for the cause of Christ than even just 20, 30, 50 years before that. And so uh, with great, you know, uh, passion, A.B. Simpson would, would speak about world missions and being concerned not just for our own lives, but for the sake of a lost and a broken world. So they were at the missionary conference, and, and I believe it was on the, the third night, A.B. Simpson preached, and I assume it had to be a, a great message, you know, with what I'm about to tell you, but so you get to the end of the message, and he says, to end tonight, we're going to take up an offering. And he said, it's not going to be an offering like you are accustomed to. The baskets that are being passed are filled with watches, perfectly good, normal, ordinary watches, not, nothing fancy about them. Some of you, and, and I think inside of that day, it was a custom that one of the things, you know, that, that men would do is, is wear really fine, you know, gold watches, and sometimes they would be handed down uh, from generation to generation. And he said, if you are wearing a, a gold watch that you really don't need, you can take that watch, put it in the basket, take out one of these perfectly good watches, we'll sell the jewelry and send it around the world for the cause of Christ. The basket came by and, and Charles Kalman uh, took the basket in one hand and pulled off his watch in the other and he put it in the basket. Letty leaned over and said, I gave you that watch but the basket had passed. 
That offering got done, and A.B. Simpson stood again, and he said, now we're going to take a second offering. He said, some of you, both male and female, wear more jewelry than what's necessary for proper attire and adornment. And so if you have extra jewelry that you don't necessarily need, or is maybe perhaps even a bit excessive, perhaps you would want to put that inside of the offering basket, and we'll sell it and send the money around the world for the cause of the gospel. So the basket came around again, and much to her surprise, Charles Kalman took the basket and he slipped off the diamond ring that was on her left ring finger. And he put it in the basket, and before she realized it, it was already passed and it was already gone. Now, fellas, let me just say, even if you love Jesus and want to prioritize him inside of your life, this is not necessarily what I would suggest that you do. If you do, you could follow it up with a nice little like snarky statement like, well, honey, do you love Jesus more than, you know, but you know, you, you don't want to go there, but that's inside of this moment, you know how the, the spirit of God must have been stirring and speaking inside of that moment. After that, uh, Dr. Simpson stood up again and he said, now we're going to take a financial offering. The basket came around and Charles Kalman inside of his coat pocket pulled out his paycheck from the previous two weeks and he put it in the basket and she said, how are we going to pay, pay for groceries? But the basket had passed. At the end of that, Dr. Simpson stood up again and he said, now we'll take up the real offering. Who will go for the sake of the gospel around the world to wherever it is that he calls you for the sake of the gospel and that other people might hear and know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Charles Kalman stood up. Letty said that that moment then was a defining moment inside of her life. She said she thought that whether or not I stand up or not, he's going to go. And she said she had a decision to make inside of that split second, and so she shot up, not out of sheer excitement, but because there was something that struck her inside of that moment that said, do you really love me, and is my life your life, and your life my life? Charles and Letty Kalman went on to serve in uh, Southeastern Asia, and they started uh, a missionary or organization, uh, OMS, that many of you, you know, perhaps are familiar with. It was initially called the Oriental Mission Society. The name was changed. It's One Mission Society, but for the longest time, they had a, a strong presence inside of Southeastern Asia and now around the world. It started because a telegraph worker coming off of a major illness that called it, caused him to take stock inside of his life and what was most important, at a missionary conference said, there is nothing that's going to come between me and how God wants to stir and move inside of my life. And so I want to invite the ushers to come back. No, I'm just kidding. That's, um... <laughs> Lenny Kalman maybe is best known for the devotional that she wrote, uh, streams in the desert. And she went on to write, she outlived Charles by about 30 years. Uh, but one of her, her quotes, she said that life uh, and, and salvation, you know, particularly is not really salvage. In other words, that we're not saved just out of the world, but we're saved to be an investment back into, to be used in the world. That your life, if you just imagine this kind of as steps, like Part of it is your identity in Jesus Christ, that you belong to him, that you are named according to his name, that you are part of the family of God, that you have a, a place inside of eternity, that your life is not your own, and that your central identity is shifted inside of who Christ is. 
And if you were to almost, you know, as a building block, right on top of that becomes the transformation that he wants to do and bring inside of your life. To bring healing, to bring hope, to bring transformation inside of the broken places within us. But we can't just allow it to end there, that it's just an identity in Christ and that all of our, you know, wounds get bandaged up. But there's a third level to that, which is the work that he's done for you. He wants also you to engage in for the sake of a lost and a broken and a dying world. And whether that leads you across the seeds or whether that just leads you to look at your life and your relationships and the hours in your day and your skills and your intellect and everything it is that you have to look at that differently because of who he is and what he's done inside of your life. And so all throughout Lent, you hear the word keep. And to keep is to maintain or to remain or to be steadfastly committed. And the word for today is keep going. That we are a people who go, and whether it's across the street or around the world, we are a people who are called to move forward in and with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, throughout Lent, we are inside of the book of Mark. Uh, The book of Mark is the first gospel that was written. It's the shortest gospel that was written. It is the gospel that probably has the most plain language and the most raw emotions. There's not a whole lot of literary eloquence in the gospel of Mark. But very simply and powerfully, Mark describes for us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, inside of Mark's 16 chapters, the first eight chapters are about the identity of who Jesus is. Jesus' identity. We don't get the Christmas story in the Gospel of Mark. Mark jumps right in and he just begins to give us the Gospel and he jumps right to it. This is the identity of who Jesus is. And right away you realize why it is that he came. He came to give his life for a lost and a broken world and that we have a relationship with him that transforms everything about us. By the time you come to Mark chapter 8, halfway through the book, Jesus sets out towards Jerusalem and he begins to say that I'm going to, you know, the Son of Man is going to go and and be handed over to, you know, the chief priests and to the leaders and and he's going to be crucified and died and killed. And so in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, there's this build up towards why it is he came. Beginning with Mark chapter 11, 11 through 16, more than one third of Mark's gospel is about the last week in the life of Jesus. Now, what's any of that mean? It means this, Mark did not set out to write a biography of the life and times of Jesus. Mark did not set out to say, let me tell you the life story of Jesus. All the miracles, all the stories, who he, who he was, what he was like, what his interests were. Mark says, I have a limited and a finite amount of space on this piece of parchment, and I want to tell you why he came and who he is and what that means for your life it makes all the difference in the world. And so some have said the Gospel of Mark is really the story of, a, of the cross with a short, you know, seven-chapter introduction, but the story of the cross. So I want to read for you today out of, out of, Matthew, or out of Mark chapter 6. And it's interesting, of all the stories you know, that Mark would give us, this one becomes key for him, and it's kind of a two-part story about his life and his mission. And so in Mark chapter 6, 
Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's the wisdom that has been given him? What are are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people, a few sick people, and heal them. He was amazed. One translation says marveled. It's the only time inside of the Gospel of Mark the word is used. Jesus marveled. And that's not a good thing. If you could be surprised or elated or overjoyed by something, but when you marvel, it's kind of a head-scratching moment. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And he went around teaching from village to village. And so Jesus is here, and he's in his hometown. This is the place where he's grown up. His uh, earthly ministry really doesn't begin until the age of 30. And so for years, he has worked inside of this town. For many years, he's attended the synagogue inside of this town. These are the people who uh, were kind of his surrogate moms and dads. You know, it takes a village to raise a child, and so they've seen him grow up. Uh, As the Son of God, they've seen his character come through. They've seen uh, who he is on display, and whether or not that was like fully at work or whether or not that was veiled kind of behind a, a curtain, I think you could tell from an early age that there was something different about him. But despite all that they had seen and witnessed, and even inside of this moment, that first begins, he begins to teach in the synagogue and they are amazed by him. Where did he get this knowledge? Why does he speak like that? Where did these words come from? But then it, it, it's as if, as if, if their amazement is somehow circumvented by the fact that they realize, wait a second. There is no way a guy who grew up in this town working with his hands every day, should be able to speak like that. And all of a sudden, you know that antenna that goes up that says, maybe we're being tricked. Maybe we're being scammed. Maybe there's some pyramid scheme that he, you know, he's trying to get us in on. Or maybe there's... And, and, and immediately, there begins to be some resistance to who he is. And, and, and they, they add to it and they say, he's a carpenter. You see, if God's going to send a Messiah, a deliverer, or even just an influential rabbi, there is training, there is pedigree, there is lineage, and it doesn't look like this. Because we can see that his hands are calloused, and we know what he does for a living, there's no way that he could really be who he's claiming to be. They also say, isn't this Mary's son? Now, some scholars believe, you know, that Joseph, uh, Jesus' earthly dad, like died at a young age. And so maybe that's why that we don't really hear much about Joseph after the birth narratives. We don't know what happened to Joseph. Some would point to this passage and say, maybe this is proof that Joseph isn't around any longer because when it comes inside of a male-dominated culture that you would normally ask to say, oh, you know, that's, that's, that's Jesse's son or that's James's son or, or that's John's son, Here they say, isn't that Mary's son? That's one possibility. Another and perhaps the more dominant possibility that scholars think is that there's 
some element of scorn or shame to associate someone according to their mother than according to their father's lineage in this society in the first century world in Judaism. And so maybe this is the equivalent of saying, this is Mary, you remember the teenage girl inside of our town who got pregnant and, you know, supposedly, you know, there's thing that maybe it was of God, it was of the Holy Spirit, but the reality is we don't know who his daddy is, and so we're just going to call him Mary's son. In either case, regardless of the reason, there's this phenomenal teaching that amazes them at one moment, and then there's this resistance. And it says that even while Jesus was there, he couldn't do any miracles among them except heal a few people. Which, by the way, might be my favorite except inside of all of Scripture, you know, because if I'm one of those few people, I'm pretty happy that Jesus was around inside of town. But it says that he could really do no miracles except a few isolated things. That does not speak to his divine ability as much as it speaks to the receptivity and openness to the people inside of the town. Because they couldn't get past the fact that they had watched him grow up when he had pimples on his face and he was riding his bike delivering papers. Probably not, but you know, you kind of get the gist. They couldn't get past the fact that maybe God would have something for them through him. So they reject him. Now, Jesus goes on, and I think this becomes a, a powerful object lesson for him to teach the disciples and train the disciples. The reading on in verse number nine, calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and they preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. I think if I were Jesus and you were trying to raise up 12 guys that you were kind of questionable as far as their pedigree and their lineage and their skills and their abilities. I might have sent them out two by two after Jesus walked on water and he invited Peter to come out and Peter walks on water also and even though he begins to sink a little bit, he's able to do that and that would be a time to be like, hey guys, you see, this is what I want for you. This is the kind of thing that you can do. Now go out. I might have thought about doing it after the, the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is transfigured and they see him in, in his brilliance. That would be a good time to come down the mountain and say, guys, now I want you to go, go out in the ministry. Maybe after the feeding of the 5,000, after all, they, they've already been modeling this. Jesus, you know, broke the bread, he, he prayed over, he gave thanks, and he says he gave it to the disciples and they went around to the crowd. They witnessed the miracle as a tiny little piece of bread and a tiny piece of fish never ran out but fed an entire crowd. That would have been the moment to say, all right, guys, you see what ministry's like. You take what I give you and you give it to the world. Let's go do it. But instead, Jesus takes maybe one of the lowest points inside of his ministry from a public point of view, the, sh the potential shame and embarrassment inside of that moment that even in his own town they didn't recognize who he was, 
And he says, guys, you know what? Let me tell you a little bit about what ministry is like. We go. We go and we give and we invest and we tell and we pray and we don't necessarily have control over what happens when, but we go anyway. So here's what I want you guys to do. This is going to be just a, a short encounter. That you're not going away for a month or for a year, but just for this little bit, you know, you, you two, uh, Andrew and Thaddeus, I want you to go to that town over there. Simon and Judas, I want you to go to that town over there. Thomas and Matthew, I want you guys to go to that town over there. Go, and, and by the way, you don't need to take a big backpack. Leave your extra clothes at home. You don't need to pack a lunch. You don't need to take any money. But if you've trusted me thus far, will you trust me with your little, with your insufficientness, with even the way that you feel about what you've been called to do, and will you trust me and go anyway? See, Jesus saw that the powerful teaching moment didn't come after a great victory, but even after a time that would have them scratching their heads saying, we left everything to follow this guy. And yet the people that live two doors down don't even necessarily believe in him. I think faithfulness in ministry means that you do the next thing that Jesus is calling you to do. You love the next person that Jesus places inside of your path. You step in and you help in the next opportunity where you feel the nudge of the Holy Spirit that you can make a difference somewhere. And we don't look for the, the grand things that, that our name can be in lights or there's something to be celebrated, but you do the next best right thing for the glory of God. And you're willing that God's agenda can interrupt your agenda, not with the guarantee of success, but just with the call to be faithful. So he sends them out two by two. And they go out and they experience ministry. And I think these two things kind of lead me to think about a couple of things for us as, as the church inside of, especially this season, I think it's always been true, but inside of this season in our culture and in our world and as a church together. The part of doing ministry is that we do ministry, that we keep going, but we go together. That there is strength not just in numbers in the sense of you need people around you, but there is no difficult thing that you've been called to that you step into alone. Now, I'm not saying if you have a difficult conversation to have this week with your brother-in-law or your sister or something hard to do that you get to take your small group with you because that would be weird and then the conversation wouldn't happen. But let me tell you how you can take your small group with you is before you go into something difficult, you ask for the backup prayer support that you need. That seems obvious except for the fact that the things that are the most difficult and challenging are oftentimes the things that are most personal and private inside of our lives, we don't invite people in to the places and the situations where we need people the most. And so we think we're going to humbly trust God or we're going to be strong or they wouldn't understand or I hate to burden them or whatever, but part of being the church is that we do this together. That's why we also believe here that ministry happens best in teams. There are no lone rangers in ministry, including, you know, the, the person who stands up here every week. Like, we do ministry as a team. Like, 
as a staff, even as like a preaching team, like we get together, we do ministry together because there is something greater um, than just simply one person at a time, but there is strength that comes in the fact that God has called us to be part of a community together. I think that leads into the second part. When you're a part of something that's larger than you, it's hard to be arrogant or selfish about it. And so in addition to going together, we go humbly. That the humility of going to your own family and friends and telling them about who you are and about the kingdom of God, even when they won't believe and accept. The humility of saying we don't need to take a backpack full of all the resources that we think we're going to need because when we go in him, he's enough. To trust that the Holy Spirit can prompt you and lead you. But I think the attitude also that there is a time for boldness, boldness that would even at times bring a confrontation or step in with a strong word. But I think our default is that we walk into situations with humility and even at times with brokenness to say we're not coming in as the people with all the answers, but we're coming just to say, how can I help? And so we go humbly. And I think ministry always evolves that we go specifically, or even in terms of specific situations. Ministry always has a context. You can say that you love generally or that you're patient with people generally, but that bears itself out inside of specific situations and context. If you want to pray that God would give you more patience, measure that fruit of the Spirit in your life with the person who tries your patience the most. Because that's where you'll where you'll know whether or not the Spirit is bearing fruit of patience inside of your life is not with the person that's easy to get along with or the person in your life who never speaks or never causes any problems, but find the person that makes you come to your wit's ends and say, God, would you increase my patience? Ministry always has a context, and I think the more specifically we think about, the more specifically we pray for people, the more specifically we enter in, the more use we are to God inside of where he has us and what he wants from us. So they went to specific towns. And let me just say one thing about that. He says, if you go there and you, and you begin to, to be in ministry, but they won't receive you, you know, shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next town. Now, we usually equate that as kind of a word of judgment. And, and the reality is that's, that's part of what's there inside of that phrase, that there is something of, all right, if they won't receive you, move on and just leave them to God and God will take care of them. But there's also a very practical picture that that created in the minds of the disciples. That when you walked in, inside of a place where there was dirt roads and sandals on your feet and there was so much dust in the air, when you walked into someone's home, we sometimes do this. Maybe you'll take your shoes off or you'll, you know, use the mat outside. But they would literally almost like kick their sandals together, make sure that, you know, there was no, no sand, no dust upon them. Because when you walked into someone's house, it was incredibly difficult to keep clean and you didn't want to bring in with you the miles worth of dust that you've been going through. It's like when you would play mud football as a kid and before you came inside, your mom said, no, 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 don't bring any of that in here. Take all that stuff outside and then come in. Well, mom, it's the front door and there's cars going by. Like, I don't care, you know. Take off your muddy clothes and then come in. Anybody else's mom do that? That was me, that was us. I wasn't like 16 at the time. I think I was like five, but still, you know, it was. 
don't bring your muddy stuff in here. And I think about this, how many of, of us inside of ministry or service, we've gone into different places, but because we experience rejection over here or difficulty over there or hardship over there, all of a sudden there's a wall that gets created and we say, all right, I'm done with that. I'm never gonna do that again. I'm never gonna try that. When the reality is the word of Jesus is, if you go somewhere and you've done your best but there's no reception, Wipe the slate clean. Clean off your shoes. Wash your hands. And walk into the next, next situation fresh. That may be the toughest thing to do inside of relationships. That may be the toughest thing to do inside of ministry. That may be the toughest thing to do when you're trying to serve somewhere. Is that when you have a bad taste in your mouth in one situation, to put the period, wipe the slate clean, take the break, and walk into the next situation fresh. Otherwise, we get hard and calloused and cynical and we say, tried that, people don't want to listen. Tried to share Jesus, people didn't want to hear it, so you know what? Let God deal with them. It's your responsibility, it's my responsibility. Just like a little palate cleanser to kick the dust off your feet, make sure that you're clean and fresh and ready for the next situation that follows. You may not be at a situation where God's going to call you to leave your homeland and go to a distant country. You may not be in a place where God is going to call you to leave your occupation and choose a different occupation. But each and every day, each and every week, God sends before us opportunities to keep going and walking into that not only he could know you and recreate your identity or transform your life, but he can also use, use your life to make a difference right where you are. And so Eddie and Bill are going to come up and we're going to uh, wrap up today together and um, I invite them up five minutes before the hour is up so it kind of, because uh, I don't know about you, but they can tend to get long-winded. I mean, for me, you know, I try to, you know, it's, uh... and I just want them to uh, share a little bit of how this is working out. You know that, um, if you don't know, Bill is our assistant pastor and Eddie is our pastor of discipleship and both have been on staff here for a number of years and both are seeking to move forward inside of the calling that God has for them and how that's outworking. And so um, some of these are public updates and some of them are not. So yours is somewhat Facebook official and everything. So yeah. uh, why don't you just update us, tell us what God's, God's doing. So uh, most of you know that um, I recently announced officially that I'm going to be retiring from teaching as of June uh, of this year. Uh, wasn't necessarily a part of my plan in September. Um, it has always been my plan that one day I would retire from teaching and pursue something in ministry. I've just felt that that's always been a, a calling on my heart. Um, and it's just no surprise um, God has laid the journey out ahead of me uh, sooner than I realized. And um, it's been really awesome to see how he has put things in place um, where it's, you know, I couldn't believe that it was going to be so soon. Um, he made it perfectly clear to me a couple of months ago that, that the time was now. And so I started pursuing it, and just one step after another, uh, he led the way. And so um, where I look forward to being retired from teaching, uh, there's still a lot of unanswered questions, and I'm not 100% sure of the direction I'm going next, 
uh, specifically. So if we have any conversation, and uh, I've already had a lot of people asking me a lot of questions, um, and the answers are I'm not 100% sure. But uh, I would ask you that you would continue to pray for me as I, as I follow this journey and I follow his leading to see where he's going to take me next. Um, but I know I'm in the right place uh, for, for right now. So that's my update. And the other thing we know is that all of Tina's jewelry is on, you know, online right now for sale after the, <laughs> you know, the Lenny Calvin story. And so uh, to fund ministry, let's, yeah. Let's, uh, I, I don't think that's the case. But, uh, no, that's that's okay. All right. How about you, Eddie? No, I bring my own. Thank you. <laughs> uh, many of you know my journey. I've shared a lot of it from the, from the platform here. Um, you know, the last two years have been very, very tough. And, and I think sooner than I realized is probably what sums up my life recently. Um, but as I was looking at the end of the year, business was empty. Uh, I'm not really sure what was going to happen into this next year. Um, I was on, everybody knows I'm, I'm in seminary, working towards my degree, um, knowing that that, that was where I was heading. I was heading into, into full-time ministry with that. Um, but looking into this year and what would happen with the business, I saw a job posting through a college website for the Greater New Jersey Conference, was looking for local pastors and um, you know, n not needing ordination requirements, just going into local pastor school. Um, and, and it was you know full-time with benefits and that kind of stuff. And, and so that appealed to me. Early January, I reached out to the DS just saying, hey, I don't know the process. What is all this about? What would be the next step? At least to start looking towards something that was different than the direction I was heading uh, with the business. So uh, all that to say, I didn't hear anything, didn't know what was going on. Um, but within the last week, uh, I received an appointment to Olivet UMC in Pittsgrove. So I will be closing out my time here at St. John's and heading into a uh, full-time pastor's appointment um, starting in July, uh, finishing up local pastor school this spring and um, working through an entire process of that. So that is... So I'm glad that you all, you know, th that that's the response because I think sometimes, and uh, you know, if you've been a part of St. John's over the years, you know that you know, at times there's the relationship with the annual conference, especially when it comes to appointment season. It's like, uh, you know, it's, it's never a good thing when Jeff Leonard stands up in front of the congregation, you know, with something to announce. Um, and, you know, at times I think it could be easy to say we just, we love our church. We love the people of our church. And we just want to, like, get all the right people in our church and on our staff and just hold on to them and just wait till Jesus comes back and everything's going to be good. But... <laughs> But that's not how your life works. That's not how our church works. That's not how the kingdom of God works. That there is always, if there's a movement, part of keeping and keeping going is the idea that we want to always be a listening church. To listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Where is God opening a new opportunity, a new door, a new challenge for us to step through? Whether that's a little door, or a big door, or it involves, you know, employment change, or where it just simply involves doing that next thing, we want to be a listening church. We also want to be a going church. Gone are the days where you just put a good program together and a nice billboard out front and just expect people to show up. People come to know Christ because other people care, engage, love them, and invite them. And so we go, we don't wait. It's not enough just to welcome and receive. We go to difficult situations because that's what Jesus did. 
We want to be a listening church, we want to be a going church, and we want to be a sending church. And so the reality is that while Eddie was part-time in ministry here and, and thinking about the, the future and now, uh, he has the opportunity and the DS is because of who St. John's is and your involvement inside of him and you're you know, helping to form and shape him, he begins the process in January and steps into a full-time you know, appointment in July in a healthy, strong church that is looking for a good pastor. And they, they got Eddie, and, but no, that's, it's, not, it's, not the, it's not the time for jokes. Like, there, there's a time and a place like, for jokes. You, you but, literally beat me by this much. Yeah, I mean, I was like, so, we were so close to being like done and wrapping this up well, but then, you know, I had, I had to, so. But no, the reality is, and I remember, you know, Doug Smith had told me this when I got to Sharptown was, you can go through seminary and go through school, but it's, it's the people and it's the church that teach you how to be a pastor. And I, you know, I kind of thought that was just like a, him a nice way of saying, like, yeah, Sharptown's a good place and you're going to have fun here. And, but it really became true that, you know, you can learn the theology and the biblical knowledge and all of that, but when you deal with real life situations and you see other people, we get paid to do this and it's part of our jobs, but when we look and see, you know, you guys making like difficult conversations to step into a situation, to, to care for a situation where something's needed, to give sacrificially, there's something that happens to say, that's why we do what we do. And so your shaping and nurturing inside of Eddie's life makes that possible that, uh, you know, another congregation is going to continue to grow and thrive because of his uh, leadership into the future. And so you're going to have uh, tons of opportunities to pray for him and surround him. He's still here for another couple months, but we wanted to make that announcement uh, to you today. But all that to say this, um, what's God calling and asking of you? And will you keep going? And whether or not you feel like your best days are behind you in terms of physically or your time is not your own or whatever limitation, there is always a li limitation that stands in front of us. But the kingdom of God is built upon the fact that the people who are available, it's not necessarily your ability, but your availability, the people who are available and say that, God, I don't have much, but what I have is yours to use however you see fit, He's literally able to transform the world by that. And so Letty Kalman, it's her small diamond ring, and it's his gold watch, and it's their paycheck, all of which would be super huge inside of that moment, but the real offering came and said, will you give your life to what God is calling you to? So here, here's three questions for you, and then... As we uh, conclude and sing together, Bill and Eddie and I are going to stand down here. If you want to come and pray about, maybe it's something little, like, you know what, I feel like God's nudging me to do this, and I, I just need to go do it. Whether it's something big that God's calling you to full-time Christian service or, you know, whatever it is, whether God's laying a new area of ministry on your heart or you're just saying, you know, coming through the past two years, I've gotten out of habits and I want to get back into the habit of serving. Whatever it is, if you want to come and pray, we would love to pray with you. But here's how we break this down. Where has God placed you? You don't have to look for a context. You already have a context. You already have a where. And so look around you. Where has God placed you? Because there, he can make a difference in your life. Even though you might feel like Jesus in the middle of Nazareth, God can use you right where you are. Uh, number two, who is God sending you to? And I know this is bad grammar for all the English teachers out there, but uh, the who inside of your life, who is God sending you to? Don't necessarily think that it's always going to be this brand new group of who's that are out there somewhere. 
you're already sur surrounded by a bunch of who's. And so uh, where has God placed you? Who is God sending you to? And then what specifically today is God asking of you? And might he find us faithful? Be a listening church, to be a going church, to be a sending church. Let's pray. God, we would pray that even as we conclude our time together this morning, that you would speak specifically, uh, that you would speak uh, maybe perhaps a word of challenge, maybe it's a word of encouragement. Uh, God, we thank you for the reality that your kingdom is built not on and through our strengths and our uh, wonderful you know, acts of wisdom, but you oftentimes use our weaknesses. You use the places where we feel insufficient. And God, you're able to take that and use it for the advancement of your kingdom. God, would I, I would pray this week for little things and big things, for little decisions and big decisions. God, that you would continue to use us and that you would enable us even to keep going. Maybe we find ourselves serving and, and we're just tired. Uh, Lord, that you would even give us uh, the ability and the strength just to keep going. Lord, if there's something new that you want to birth inside of our lives, Lord, we invite you to do that. So even in our closing moments uh, this morning, we pray that you would meet us here inside of this place. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.